Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Allison Hawley back to the show to discuss asset health and mobile equipment monitoring. We do stray from this topic quite a bit, and we go dive into uh, what electric vehicles look like and how we're going to be monitoring those, what's going to be different running electric vehicles versus, you know, uh, larger equipment. It's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will, too. Before we jump into this episode, a quick message from our sponsor, NanoPrecise. Hello, listeners. This is Steve Doby, one of your co-hosts of the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. As you know, we have a sponsor, NanoPrecise. And each week, we have been bringing you a machine doctor to the rescue where we learn how NanoPrecise has been able to alert their clients of early faults and issues within their systems saving huge costs and downtime. And this week is no different. In a chemical plant on the ammonia pumps, Machine Doctor alerted an early fault in the pump veins, helping this chemical plant save huge costs and downtime. To find out more, visit nanoprecise.io. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and I've got Allison Hawley with me here today. How is it going today, Allison? Pretty good, thanks. Yourself? I am doing excellent. It is late at night that we're recording this, even though we're only a block away from each other. It is still COVID, ready for this to be over. Um, (laughs) um, So Allison is going to be one of our experts on our upcoming Maintenance Mastermind Mobile Equipment Edition, which is pretty exciting, and you should definitely check it out on our website. Um, Tell us, Allison, what... Uh, what topics are you diving in, in in this mastermind? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about mobile monitoring all the way from how do you set up program to get access to data and different options depending on the right fit for your business, um, how to determine the right fit all the way up to what do you do with that data and how do you future proof the program that you set up? I love it. I love it. And Sorry, I got to ask, what is what is future-proofing? So not handicapping yourself in any one direction. So there's lots of ways that there are known unknowns, like uh, increased amount of processing capacity that you're going to need and increased data and increased data resolution. And then there are unknown unknowns. So what does the future of APIs look like? What does the future of... Uh, edge computing, or, you know, what types of devices are we going to be using in 10, 15 years in the field? Um, A lot of that is still early days for what's successful in a mechanic's hands. Um, So the more we learn about what kind of technologies we roll out is going to determine what our needs are in the future. So we need to make sure that we're always keeping an open door for those. Oh, that's so interesting. And, And how do you plan for things that are upcoming that you have no idea what's coming up. If I phrase that poorly, per, perhaps, but. <laughs> I, I got your intent. Uh, the key thing is to make sure you're flexible. So the future is really module, m- modular. Um, you know, we talk about it a lot in maintenance as being something that we look forward to in our equipment of how do you make that engine really easy to swap in and out. And the same goes for our technology when we're designing architecture. So, you know, if you're, how do you change in and out your database without in 
interrupting your end user experience. The more modular, modular, I should have picked a different word to describe <laughs> that, uh, your architecture is, the more likely you are going to be able to continue to grow on it over time. So, you know, uh, I'll go into more details about how to do that and how to pick the right pieces for today as well. But that, that's, that's the gist of it. Just make sure you don't have any key dependencies that can't be swapped out. This is what I'm really excited about for the mastermind is because this world, like I, I, I started my reliability and condition monitoring. I started it in oil analysis, which is very much like last century condition monitoring. And what you do today based like, obviously oil analysis is still very important, but the data that's at your fingertips today, it's like, you can't just jump from that oil analysis role into this other role of monitoring all this other stuff. It's just impossible. It's, it's such a much more broad and you need much more breadth of knowledge about this equipment specifically, rather than just like the oil or, or just how vibration works. And, and it's, it's really neat seeing this holistic, this holistic view of it all. And I'm really excited in the mastermind that, um, cause I am very, ill-equipped for this discussion and I have people ask me that question all the time and I have the podcast and people talk to me about condition this asset health and world and I'm like let's you know let's refer to Blair that's why he's got his part of the show and I've got mine so I'm, I'm really excited to um, become a little more dangerous uh, in this area <laughs> um, now we've also talked a lot about um monitoring and like this, you know, the, the mastermind is going to be uh, specific to mobile equipment, but there's a lot of commonalities between mobile and fixed. Like what, what's really the difference that we see? Cause I know a lot of people have like a big fixed, fixed, uh, not fleet is the right word, but fixed plant uh, or mill or something like that. That's they're monitoring, but to actually go and monitor some of their mobile equipment, you know, maybe they don't have that many pieces and it's not worth monitoring, but what, is there a big challenge or a step change between monitoring a plant versus monitoring your fixed equipment? Yeah, so there are some, you know, very CBM type challenges that uh, fixed equipment is very secular and you know exactly what bounds it's supposed to operate in. So setting up things from that perspective is easier, but it's can be more challenging from how do you collect the data. So with mobile equipment that's moving around, you can set up uh, a different type of, um, I don't know how, how, how into detail we want to get, but you know, your mesh networks and you don't have to worry too much about how far away it is from a router because it's going to move and you know, then you're worried more about how often you're collecting your data. There's, there's different challenges in terms of your um, how you collect the data, which, and then in mobile, they move, right? So you don't get a set amount of, it's always gonna be 90 degrees. And if it's not 90 degrees, there's something wrong because is that truck traveling uphill? Is it, how hot is it outside? And you have so many external factors for how you look at your data, but then it ends up being less complicated from a network standpoint. At least that's been my experience so far. There's probably a lot of people with the opposite experience, but um, that's what I have found is it's very different challenges in how you acquire the data and what you do with it. They've, in those two aspects, they've been 
quite opposite. Oh yeah, that's interesting because, um, yeah, because well, and I think about IIoT, and I remember when I first heard about it, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, we have all these plants; they're they're already being monitored. We just ran cables, and now we've got the ability to set up a wireless system. So you know, monitoring data in plants that's been done for a very long time, but mobile equipment it used to just be, you know you might get a download of the PM or something like that, but it really hasn't been until like the last five, 10 years that we've mm -hmm. been able to effectively monitor the equipment. And that's something that I don't think is industry-wide. You know, there's a really big range in how effective different companies are at mobile equipment. You know, there is a good baseline and really good industry practices for how to monitor fixed assets. And so there's a, uh, it, there's almost less room to grow in that area than compared to mobile assets, which some companies haven't started to touch yet because setting up that infrastructure and, and the Wi-Fi networks and everything else and the hardware to actually capture that data is um, a pretty big capital investment that there hadn't been a need for in the past. Whereas fixed, it's more incremental and slower over time as we just gain new ways of looking at that same data or sensors get cheaper to add into existing systems. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's, oh, there's, there's so many aspects to it. And is there like scalability? So, you know, I know, because I'm tied in fairly closely with like the OEMs, Caterpillar, Komatsu, um, the other five or so that make mobile equipment. And, um, you know, they're all coming out with their onboard sensors. They're all coming out with their condition monitoring centers of excellence, call it whatever you want. Like it's a, just a, a bunch of people in an office watching your equipment is like in terms of scalability, it used to be very difficult for small miner, a quarry or, or somebody just running a few pieces of equipment to actually monitor mobile assets, probably to the point where it's not worth it at all. But how is that changing with the scalability that's coming out with some of these other solutions that we're seeing from third parties? I am really excited to see more people get involved, especially the manufacturers, because I think now that they have a reason to be in this, they're going to design their equipment to be monitored, which is really new. Uh, right now, most equipment is not designed to be monitored, at least the mobile equipment that I'm familiar with. Um, but for scalability, I, I don't think we know yet, you know, even the manufacturers that are trying to monitor their own equipment, they're very new to it. They've got great big sales pitches. They're new to it too. Um, and, and, and it shows in, in the output that they're providing, um, in terms of both the, the software, the hardware and, and the actual, what they're monitoring. So, um, well, this is what I, I, I love about when I talk to you about this is because you have more experience monitoring the equipment and working and your team specifically have more experience than most OEMs and have better knowledge than the OEMs on the equipment. Like, you know, we always talk about, you know, the mechanics, the, the technicians that are working on the equipment and you filled your team with a bunch of technicians that just, already know what's going on and mm -hmm. how how important is that that 
you know, because I took that role in oil doing condition monitoring without really knowing anything about equipment, but it's oil. There's so many, you know, it, it takes a bit to learn, but ultimately you can learn it relatively short order. But for like an engineer or somebody who hasn't actually worked on the equipment you're monitoring, is there, is that step change something that could be overcome or is it even worth looking at overcoming or is it a great place for technicians to kind of break out of that traditional wrench pulling role? Anything can be learned, right? And I think when you put someone with more of an engineering background, they're going to bring something different to the table than a technician. So, you know, more and more I'm learning that a multidisciplinary team is more important than having all mechanics or, you know, all people that have had hands-on I, I really think the diversity in, in skill set is really important. Um, but upskilling in both directions, right? So I am really proud of being able to build a, um, a career path outside of, um, you know, a, a lot of mechanics talk about wanting to get off the tools before they get past a certain age, especially for heavy duty mechanics. And I'm really glad that I'm able to start it, to create a new opportunity for them to do that because not everyone wants to be a supervisor. Um, but the other direction too, right? So for engineers taking a path that goes a little bit different of a direction that is going to require you to spend a little bit more time hands-on and get more familiar with the equipment. So I think both. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. I love it. And, you know, it's all about enabling your people with, and it's about enabling your people with you know, getting that skill set and being able to learn from them. I know working with your team, I've learned a ton and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's, you've put together a fantastic team. I enjoy working with them every chance I can. And so much so that I, I stole one of them from you yeah, <laughs> to work true. on my project. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's, you, you know, um, just to kind of switch gears a little bit and um, something that's come up a lot recently around the environmental initiatives and, and stuff like that, it's monitoring like emissions and, you know, tier four engines and, you know, some of those other more niche items that I think are becoming a little less niche. Um, what, you know, how, how well are we doing in that space in terms of knowing what's coming out of the tailpipe and understanding really what our carbon impact is and things we can do from like, you know, your, your maintenance technician that's monitoring or your asset health supervisor or whatever we're calling them. Um, are they being able to make a meaningful difference in, in terms of emissions and stuff like that as well, now that we're able to monitor this equipment this way? So There's probably two answers for this question. Uh, one being in terms of small incremental change. Yeah, of course, right? And, and it's really not from measuring actual emissions. It's more from understanding how an engine works, what can increase emissions. So it's really difficult to understand, you know, what is the CO2 output of an engine, but we know what can make it better regardless. So, um, Yes, 100%, we have an impact on that. 
And those are actions we're taking every single day. The other piece that I'm, you know, I'll, I'll lay into my values a little bit here is, is those are very small increments, right? The, the vast majority of our output is, is what's um, required just to keep that track running. So definitely not in a reason to stop looking for alternatives to fossil fuels. Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, I know that's a topic we've had long and heated, although I think we're on the same page <laughs> discussions about. And um, now, now one of the things that I always like to talk about, too, is like uh, you. So you live in the middle of almost the middle of nowhere. I, there's some places that are a little more remote, but you're you're fairly in the middle of nowhere. And everybody around here, including uh, your significant other there drives, you know, big trucks, big diesel burning trucks. And, mm -hmm. and here you are scooting around our town with, uh, with your Tesla. And um, obviously that's the future. I, I don't think there's any debate that we're all, that we're going electric cars and it's just a matter of time before that's coming. And when we're looking at electric mining vehicles, um and you know just trying to stay on the the vein of the asset health space like how how do you think that's really going to impact what we're monitoring and like I, I know a lot of the work in this space is around monitoring an engine but if there's no engine you know what what are you thinking that looks like in the future the engine is only the thing that we focus on the most because it's the highest cost and our bottleneck you get rid of that, there will be a new bottleneck. There is always, always room to improve costs and efficiencies and uptime, and that focus will move over time. So whether that becomes more so operating the way a hydro company does and being really mindful of electricity use across you know, a, a mine site and optimize efficiencies there, or if it's understanding um, you know, battery performance or, providing feedback into road design so that you can get better electricity bills. Like there's, there is always room for improvement and asset health is a tool to get to that, but it is not exclusively to do with engines or hydraulics. Oh, I love that. Cause like, I imagine when you drive your Tesla, you, you have to plan a little more for your longer trips. You need to know where the chargers are and you've had to adjust your lifestyle a little bit you can't just jump in a car drive eight hours to your destination and be there and done that's not um you, you can take a, a, your significant other's vehicle of course and, and still do that but you know to drive that tesla you have to make a very conscious decision and mapping it out it kind of reminds me of like um back with like i want to say map quest but even before map quest when you had to pull out your your map and um we always got trip ticks as kids from uh the local like uh, insurance company or whatever and, and you'd sit there and you map out your route before a gps like gps made it disrupted the map company so extraordinarily um where we didn't need to use that to plan out trips you could just get into your car and go anywhere in the world you wanted because that data is at your fingertips well we're kind of doing the opposite with with uh, the electric cars. We're going from being able to drive as far as you want and go anywhere you want to having to having to plan a little bit more, maybe not to the same extreme. Uh, you just need to know where your next charging station is 
and how long maybe potentially you're going to be there. But when we look at uh, some of the mobile equipment and the heavy equipment, we're going to have to make a similar shift in the planning because uh, there's no question a, a battery or whatever we're powering the truck with isn't going to be as energy dense and a fit uh, and not efficient isn't the right word, but energy is the energy density and the power output is not going to be the same. We're going to have to fill um, that electric truck more often. Um, and so like how you alluded to it a little bit, but um, the monitoring that you're doing on your Tesla now as you're driving and making those decisions, what are the inputs that are really making a distant uh, difference in how far you can drive? And how do you think that relates to the heavy equipment industry as it, as it moves forward? That was a very long question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not good. I'm, I, I'm excited that we're talking about it. Um, so obviously, being pretty big into data. Uh, I spend a lot of time watching the stats on my car and I'm uh, I'm watching them not because I have range anxiety, I'll make that very clear for, for any skeptical listen, listeners out there, but um, just out of pure curiosity. And what I think it's teaching me is, um, is an insight into the energy usage within a car that you do not have the visibility to when you're watching your fuel economy. So fuel economy is something that is measured very poorly and um, it is a pretty round number. So, you know, it's, it's, you're not getting very many significant digits. And so now that I have the visibility of, of what actually is the energy draw for heating my car using the air conditioning, um, you know, how much extra energy am I using when I accelerate up that hill? Um, it's, it's really the same draws that you're seeing or that you would expect to see when you're looking at something like RPM. You know, you, we know that you running your AC can have an impact on your fuel economy, but actually seeing those numbers makes me think about, do I need it to be 12 degrees in here? <laughs> when it's hot outside or do I need my cabin to be 30 degrees because I was cold outside or you know uh, the the heated seat versus the air cabin and none of this would affect my actual ability to get to point a to point b it's just it's been a curiosity in in having a vehicle and being interested in the data to actually be able to see the difference of what's more effective heating the cab or heating the seat yeah and, <laughs> and, and you know I think you know, when I think about it and driving my vehicle, I'm also very curious. And, you know, I went down a deep road when I got my, uh, when I got my one car and it had like two sig figs for fuel economy and, you know, how much am I burning while I'm sitting at a stoplight? I was trying to figure out if I could get the data downloaded off of my engine so that I could put that in and try and figure out how to conserve energy more. And, but, but what's awesome with the electric vehicles is, is it's all there. Cause it's, it, it's pretty obvious what's going on and the data is readily available. And I, I love that it's being put out there to help you improve what you're doing. And, you know, you're right. It probably doesn't make a huge difference. Maybe on a really long trip it does. Um, but, you know, we all know it's probably not healthy to sit in your car for more than three hours at a time, even though a lot of us do it. Um, but if we, but that knowledge that you're getting there, is so easily applied to a much bigger thing. Um, and also that bigger thing, those things make a bigger impact. Obviously we're not gonna worry about the temperature that the cab's at if there's an operator in the seat. 
he'll get to do whatever he wants because he doesn't have the most fun job in the world and his comfort or his or her comfort is by far the most important thing there. But outside of, outside of that, um, like management of energy going up hills is, is something that is, is interesting because it's where we spend most of the energy. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, you know, you look at how mines are designed and the assumptions that they make based on engine performance. And there are these broad strokes and they're based on manufacturer or, and sometimes even less accurate than what the manufacturer is giving for, um, uh, in terms of fuel usage. When we're looking at it from something that we have data on, we can measure and we can give that kind of continuous feedback loop of, hey, we could reduce our energy consumption by 1% if we change the grade on this hall. Um, that's gonna be a really interesting conversation to have in the future in, in how we design mines. And I'm, I'm not a mining engineer, so maybe this is all coming from a point of ignorance, but I, I know that we are going to have better data than we have today and they're going to have more ability to or more inputs into how they design. Oh, yes. I, you know, I'm so excited for the, the future and, and what that looks like and what we're going to be able to do. And, you know, it all comes back to that asset management viewpoint and that total, like, you know, our mind's an asset, each truck's an asset, our haul road is an asset. And how do those assets interact with each other? How do you maintain them? How do you improve them? And that holistic view is going to become so much more important when we just can't fill something up with diesel and just keep adding more diesel in different locations or put diesel on the back of another truck to fill up other trucks like once that flexibility is gone um we're going to have to be a lot more cohesive within the mining industry to to make our mines run effectively um now the when we're looking at a mine that's say maybe a little more junior and they're trying to look at some of this advanced technology, whether it's battery electric or, or maybe swinging back to just the monitoring piece, like jumping into these new things is, is scary. It's, there's a lot riding on it. Um, you know, I just in the oil analysis world, people are sitting there asking you why you missed a failure. And it's like, well, I missed your frame crack because it doesn't have oil in a frame, but uh, obviously being a little facetious there, but how do you start in what process um, when we start diving into monitoring, can we do to, to make those initial interactions and getting past some of these um, more, those stronger opinions or vocal opinions, um, how can we manage that? better or manage that at all because it's it comes up with every new piece of monitoring that goes out there yeah and the answer on this one is is really more of a soft skill than it is anything else like yes do good risk management and change management and and really understand your project and know your business pitch all of that but it comes down to managing fears with people and you know just the way that that uh, things work, the higher up you go, you're probably looking at older and older people. And this is 
and unfamiliar technology. We're talking about implementing things that didn't exist when your senior managers started their careers and when they were individual contributors. So you need to really recognize how foreign it is to the people that are approving your projects. And you need to make sure that you're understanding the risks from their perspective, not from your own, not what you may perceive as real risks, but the ones that they believe, because a lot of it just doesn't, doesn't quite feel as natural to them as it will for you. That, that generational gap is something we need to manage. And how, how do you manage that? Like you, you have a, um, you have somebody that you're working with and uh, maybe it's a maintenance manager, maybe it's, maybe it's a technician and they're, they're maybe older or, or not, not as exposed to technology as, as you are with, with your Tesla and, and driving, driving up to the mind without, without any emissions. And we have, you're trying to get something across and there's obvious, you know, maybe there's fear, maybe there's just lack of understanding. How do you start to bridge that gap? Like, how do you, and this is probably different for each person, but as a general, like, like let's, where do you start finding common ground? So, and, and this is more of a, you know, I will not say I'm perfect at this. I, I, this is something that's really hard to execute on all the time. But I failed at it last week. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm successful, the, the thing that actually works when I when I stop myself and and uh, and and be more mindful, it's really about starting with them, right? Ask them questions about what they think, what they think isn't going to work, why they have that perspective, and really take the time to fully appreciate their position because it, it comes from a place of truth from from their own understanding and you need to pull that apart and manage those fears to start and then find them that thing that's going to help want to change their mind so whether it's you know connecting the dots between a problem that they have that they kind of allude to in terms of efficiency that they're struggling with and saying like, hey, you know, I know you're concerned that it's not going to be able to do this one particular job, and maybe it won't, but, you know, we could probably get it to help you out in this other area, you know, give them something to look forward to, while also making sure to be respectful of, of those things that they are concerned about as well. Yeah, that's really good advice. And, and let, let's just say they come back with, you know, I've seen this initiative come through five mm -hmm. times. It, it's never worked. Why is it going to be different this time? Like, and the reality is it, it might not be. <laughs> it might not. <laughs> They're not all going to be winners. <laughs> and I, like that crusty old, mm -hmm. uh, pick whatever words you want. That's just, this person is not on your team. Um, like, how do you start managing those people. And again, I know I'm throwing you a question that's probably different per person, but it's, it happens every time. Mm -hmm. And how do you, how do you get through to them? Because I know you've gotten through to a lot of these types of people before. Some people are not going to be worth the energy and, and knowing who and when to pick your battles with, it's going to depend on what their influence is. So some people, if you don't convince them, 
you're not going to get anywhere and other people they're going to be a squeaky wheel and the only thing you can do is is prove to them that it's going to be successful and and kind of move past that um for the ones that really don't believe in it um is finding other ways to build confidence in you right like for your own self of like hey you know is there help them out in other areas, get some confidence that you can execute. Don't make them trust the technology, make them trust you as a person. Um, and, and that might be a lot more of a roundabout solution to first work on a bunch of little projects for someone just to, to build that up. But um, at the end of the day, a personal relationship is going to go a lot farther than trying to convince someone of a technology they don't understand at all. <laughs> But little wins and a couple little wins will go really far for, for convincing someone to take a big step. Yeah, I love it. So it, just to summarize there, because I think it's really important. I, I heard two real major themes. Number one, listen. <laughs> hear what the problems are. Hear what these what the people have to say before you start, start trying to solve their problems. And second of all, be more than just the engineer that's trying to put something in, be a, be a person behind, behind the, the tool, be a person behind the engineer. And, you know, and this goes definitely more to what Rob's going to be talking about in our mastermind is being that human and being that, uh, that person and building that psychological safety with that person. Um, and, and I really like those answers and it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I, I've, I've, done, <laughs> I've done good at it at some times and I've done probably the majority haven't gone well. <laughs> there are going to be some people that if they listen to this, they'd be like, that's not who she is. And to some people, I'm not that person, but you know, we learn, we grow over time. <laughs> I don't know. I, our, our, our audience size is, is questionable sometimes. So, <laughs> um, no, that's really good. And you know, I'd, there, there's so many different rows of these that can go down and, you know, we could obviously come into the mastermind, but they'll get a taste for, for how you do things and be able to bring your own problems to you uh, to, to get your feedback and get your, your advice. And, you know, other experts will be there. We'll be having really good discussions around all everybody's individual problems that they're trying to do, getting the, this stuff implemented. I'm really excited for it. Um, now we've been chatting for a little while, um, and we're, we're just about at the end of time. So before we close out, I just wanted to, as always, give you a chance to give any plugs that you might have. Anything upcoming, any, um, just particular initiatives from anybody else that you think is fascinating that people should look up. Yeah, no, so the big one is really going to be the maintenance mastermind. That's the, the thing I'm focused on right now is putting together content for that. And I'm really excited to work with some of the listeners of this podcast and, and help them out with their problems. Uh, anything else that might be upcoming, definitely follow me on LinkedIn to, to see what I'm up to. Uh, that's great. And the, the link to the, the mastermind will obviously be in the description. And as well, don't forget to check out our sponsor, NanoPrecise. Um, they are definitely in this world. They're on mobile equipment. Um, and you should take a look if you're, you're looking any of your 
main alternators on your trucks, wheel motors, uh, they've started monitoring a whole lot of things. Uh, so check them out at nanoprecise.io. And thank you, Allison, for spending time with me this evening and really excited to learn from you in the mastermind. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you so much.